Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have a great guest, one that I've had a long friendship with, uh, Moritz Plasnik, founder of Codeship, Seed Camp founder, who's recently sold his company. And we, we're going to hear his interesting and amazing story from where we first met and uh, in the early days of, of his company known as Rails on Fire in Slovenia to where he is today. Thanks for joining us today, Mortz. Hello. Welcome, everybody. By the way, guys, Mortz likes to be called Mo, so I'm just going to switch to less, <laughs> less formal Mo. Mo, talk to me about the early days uh, of, of Rails on Fire when we first met and what you were doing and, and your team at the time. Yeah, it's quite a while ago so i think by now roughly seven years um six seven years uh when so we started back in austria and and i live in the us now but we started back in austria we were three founders out of vienna and we basically were unhappy with the state of the dueling in our industry in the, in the software development space back then and we thought that there is a need for a SaaS service that does great um, continuous integration delivery, which for the for the less technical folks means that CodeChip helps to make sure that the software you are building as an engineer or as a company really works as it should work and gets into the hands of the customer faster. And so we were unhappy how that was done back then. And we thought, all right, we can do it better. Let's build a prototype. Let's use the prototype ourselves get our friends to use it, get other companies that we knew back then to use it. And we, we started from there. And because we had a focus on a specific technology in the early days, so we, we thought, okay, we need to have an MVP validate that what we're doing really works, that customers like it. So we focused on a small subset of the market, and that was the Ruby on Rails community. And that is where our initial name came from. We said, okay, we are focused on Ruby on Rails. So let's just put Rails into the name and then everybody knows what it's about. And we, we, we really we brainstormed a couple of names and we really liked Rails on Fire. And we had this really nice and cool logo with a little fire and the flames. It, it, it was perfect. Our, our early customers loved it. But it, at some point, we, we then rebranded to Coaching because we realized that, that the world is bigger than just Ruby and Rails. And there are other technologies we need to support as well. And what was uh, the ecosystem like in Austria in those days? It was different, uh, that for sure. I think it evolved and changed a lot. I think I, I don't I don't want to sound too negative, but if now living in the US, if you compare it, I think that unfortunately, especially six seven years ago, I think in Austria there there, there were some like there was a tiny startup community. There were other founders we were able to learn from, but it was definitely very different than uh, what we have now, and 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 it's still very different from the US where there's. There are simply more people thinking about building a company, and I think there are more people that want to be entrepreneurs. There are also more role models. There's a larger ecosystem, more founders you can learn from, stronger support system. So I think in Austria back then, I mean, we pretty much knew everybody in the Austrian startup technology community because it was so small. So that was great on the one hand because we, we learned a lot from other people, um, also some other Seedcamp founders from Austria. So that was great. It was easy to get advice. But then the on the on the flip side, it was also very easy 
to get to know everybody because there weren't that many people. And at some point, you know everybody and it's hard to meet new people and, and get different advice or meet companies that are further along or more companies that are in, in a similar space because if the ecosystem is small, you simply don't have that many people to talk to. So because your your company's life has had such a wide span, right, seven years, I can't imagine, it's so crazy to think that it's been that long. Um, if, if, I, if, if we look back on that and we were to divide that story into a book with chapters and we were to say, like, these are the critical chapters, right? There is the sort of early birth in, in Austria with this idea, Rails on Fire. And then, you know, there's a transition maybe when we invested or, or maybe there's a different transition, different chapter. Then there is, you know, maybe when you when you start scaling, when you change the company, when you went to the U.S., and of course now. So if you had to give us a table of contents of this book of seven years, what would the chapters be called? I, lo I love this question. So I think the first chapter would be, I, I don't have a good name, but it would be around, I think, maybe the, the name would be uncertainty because we, like when you start and have this idea, I think there is a lot of uncertainty. That's like by definition, right? Early stage startup, a lot of assumptions, a lot of risk. You have this idea. Maybe you have some people uh, who who share that idea, maybe or they have co-founders and so on. So I think in the in the early days, what our problem was, we we weren't confident enough to really believe in the idea. So when we first started. It took us, I think, a year and a half until we decided to do it full time. And we only jumped into doing it full time after we got our very first paying customer or a couple of paying customers. And now looking back with having more experience, I think that was not good because we lost a lot of time and a startup should move as fast as possible. So I think uncertainty describes it very well because we were not certain, should we do it? Should we not do it? Is it really working? Lots of people are telling us it's not working, but we understand the pain and a lot of people share the pain and we have a solution that people are already already using. So it, it took us a while until we got really hard proof points. Like there is somebody that we don't really know from the other end of the world paying for our product. So it has to be working. And that, I think, then closed the chapter of uncertainty. I think the next chapter then would be more around maybe some like early stage funding, like hiring the first employee. So it's like, all right, we're doing this full time. We met our, our I mean, we knew each other already, but uh, we got our, our investment from Seek and we were able to hire our first employee the product so i think that well that's the second phase and then afterward third chapter would be probably the rebranding or coaching with board or something like that because once we did it for a couple of months full time at the end of 2012 beginning of 2014 we realized all right it's working we get more and more customers but we are limited by what people perceive they believe that we are only working with a certain technology. CodeShip is far more powerful, better. So we need to change our name that, that people and potential customers don't automatically assume it only works with Ruby on Rails, but also with other technologies like Java, and PHP, and, and so on. And so we rebranded 
And I think that was a very, very big step. Uh, we were lucky to find a name that people loved, create a new brand, got the domain, like all those things that I think can be pretty tricky. And so that would then be the next chapter. And from then on, I think there would be something around we moved to the US. Uh, that was an important step for us, which happened early 2013. Then early 2014, we raised our first PC round, which was larger. Uh, and that's the, this next milestone where you always feel that whatever you have done before is like already years away and it's a different time because now with more money, you simply think differently. And then we raised another larger round and then it was more about scaling and and sales and less about building product to get to a point where people are really willing to purchase it. So I think those are the chapters. Uh, if, if I would have to write a book, but I, I'm probably a terrible writer, so the book wouldn't be all that great. <laughs> all right, well, you left off the next largest round. There seems like there would be another chapter that has to be like uh, scaling. And yeah. then there's probably another one which is selling. Oh yeah, yeah, we shouldn't forget about it. <laughs> uh, right, scaling and selling. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we write a second book that's about that because there's so much <laughs> content about that as well. Yeah, and then there's probably an appendix having to do with like life after. Yep. That's very good. So maybe life after is, is like, uh, how, how long has it been since acquisition? It's like, how, how long has life after been? I think, I think exactly seven weeks or maybe six weeks. So maybe it's more like Lord of the Rings where you have different like books or movies. <laughs> yeah, I think the life after is, is definitely a book, uh, a yeah. separate book for another day. All right. So then if we if we if we look at that and we bookend it, I, I wrote down these chapters. It, it sounds like there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight chapters. Uncertainty being the first one. Second one being hiring employees, rebranding, moving to the USA, first VC round, next larger VC round, scaling and selling. And yep. If we were to look at those chapters and say, you know, moments where you are like, wow, I'm really winning in life and moments when, oh man, <laughs> this is really sucking right now. What, what would those be? Yeah, the funny thing is I think it, you, you have those moments even on the same day or like in the morning you feel great, in the afternoon or at noon you feel shitty and then in the afternoon you feel great again and in the evening you feel shitty again. I think there were so many of those moments. Because it, depending on what happens, right, you, you get another customer, that's great, but then something else you were trying didn't work out, so that sucks. Or uh, you, while you're raising money, you maybe have a great meeting in the morning, then a shitty meeting around noon, and this la la, nah, could be good, could be bad type of meeting in the afternoon. So I think it's, it's every, every day it feels like we had, um, we went through all those phases. I think, that every time we, I think, entered a new chapter, I think we were always having a high, right? If you just rebrand it and you, you see that people like really like it and it's out there and you get positive feedback, that's usually, or for us, that was like one of the moments where we were like, that, that, is, that is awesome. Like it's, we worked so hard on this. We had a lot of assumptions, we did it, and it's paying off. Um, I think that's a moment where where we definitely had a high, and that was at the beginning of 2013, and then we moved to the US, and it was another high. And then at some point, it's hard for me to say when, but there were certain 
definitely moments, probably in the summer of 2014, when I was in the US, but pretty much the whole, the, the rest of the team, back then we were five, six people, the rest of the team had to go and was back in Austria because the visa situation, as we all know, is, is fairly tricky with the US. So I was the only person who was able to stay in the US and that was definitely at some point a moment where I was like, all right, that like doesn't doesn't feel great because like you worked so hard together as a team and then you're suddenly alone and then it's the summer and we were also kind of raising money, uh, but the, in the summer and, and other founders and CEOs know that feeling in the summer a, a lot doesn't get done. <laughs> so everything moves slower. It's weird to believe like the startup um, ecosystem is always moving fast, like always um, going as fast as possible, but around Christmas or around the summer, things are definitely moving slower. And so during that time period, it was really like, all right, we're not making as much progress as we want. Um, raising money takes longer um, than we thought it would take. And I'm sitting here alone in the US and, and that kind of sucks and the rest of the team can't be here and, and is back in Austria. So that was one of the moments where we, or I definitely was more down. But then again, it worked, worked out, right? Uh, we were able to raise the round, hire more people, get more customers, and then it started over again, right? There was the high and then there was someone definitely low again. And was, it, was there any one story that you would be able to share where you really thought that was it? Like... This was this was going to kill you, but you got over it. There were a lot of tools. I think in the same time period that I just described, right around raising that first large round. I think again, like in the earlier stage of a company, I think there's more uncertainty, and there are, I think you always have those moments where you think it it could completely stop working. But at least for me. I had more of those moments in the early days, maybe because it was, there was more uncertainty and it was more risky, or maybe because I was less experienced and it was harder for me to deal with that, and now I'm better and, and it's easier. But I think one of those moments was we signed a term sheet for our first large round, which was for, I think, 2.6 million. And, and, and that's like a big amount of money, right? We were six people and had some traction, had customers, but with the money, we could really like do all the things we plan to do, build all the features the customers wanted, start doing like real marketing and actually spend money on acquiring customers. It really starts scaling, double, triple the team. So it was a really big step for us. And, and we signed this term sheet and that was definitely a high, so felt great, but then Going from a term sheet to really closing the round still requires a lot of work. And one of the conditions to actually make this work was that I can stay in the US and I live in the US and, and we are headquartered in the US. And that was our plan, but my visa got delayed and that took longer than expected. And that was very, very frustrating. And there I definitely thought it would fall apart because you... You have this new round lined up and you have found an investor, you agreed on terms, you have the contracts ready. Um, and in the meantime, we still try to run the business and make progress um, and, and get more customers, but also burn money. And then the thing that could just nuke that whole process and basically, I mean, it would have probably or could have killed us 
is this external factor of a visa that I can't control, right? It was not that I was not sure if I should move to the US or if I want to stay there. It was, it's I want to do it. It's so but, weird, isn't it? How like something yeah. so not under your control can be such a, a reason for things not to go. But how about other things within, within your control? And I know one of the things that is tricky in your line of business is sales and the sales cycles and the speed of the sales cycles and selling to the kinds of customers that you sell to. Do you want to share any, any sort of lessons learned? horror stories or, or good stories around dealing with an enterprise customer, dealing with a, a dev tool, sales cycle? Yep. I think, to be honest, I think whenever I think back and think about our customers, I really, not, I mean, I primarily have positive experiences. It's hard for me to find a horror story there because Whenever we were struggling, whenever something was not working, we always went back to the customer and focused on what they wanted. That's so like like in our DNA, and that's probably from the very early days, from that uncertainty chapter where we were like, we believe what we do makes sense. We have other people who believe it makes sense, like potential customers and then customers, but a lot of investors, a lot of other people like, told us, it's not working, like there are not enough developers in the world, they won't pay for a product, they build everything themselves, you can't sell to them, yada, yada, yada. So in those moments, we always went back, but there are those people who love the product and they're interacting with us and they are paying. And so that never changed for us. It was the same when we had struggles raising around or when there was this issue with the visa, but we always did this. All right. If you can't change all those other things, and if there are those external factors, let's just go back to what we do best, which is spending time with customers, getting more customers, building a product that creates more value for them. And so for us, I think customers were always, always great. I mean, there were certainly moments where like we lost a customer that maybe outgrew us because we were a small startup and there was maybe another company just growing extremely fast and outgrew us and then we lost the customer and that was painful uh, or other things, but to be honest, it was always great with our customers. <laughs> that, that kept us going, and they, I think, helped us to keep the lights on in our darkest moments. So, but let's explore. Let's explore that relationship with your customers a little bit more. Walk us through what your typical sales process was like, because you know you're you're representing your relationship with the customers in a very casual way, and 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 clearly, it sounds like they were very passionate about you as much as you were about them. But what was that? relationship like at the very beginning how did you reach out to them how did you how did you find them how did you convert them so that other founders could learn from from some of the challenges that you went through to 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 build that casual relationship so for us we try to stay very close with the customer spending a lot of time with them and our customers were all over the world and that that was really good, but also a little bit challenging because we rarely met customers in person. So it was online and developers and engineering managers. And those are people that like live online, right? And everything in the software industry or a lot of it happens online. You interact online, uh, you, you learn about new technologies online. Yes, there are meetups and conferences, but there's the, the industry is more online than other industries. So for us, it was easy to talk with a customer that lives in a country we never have been to because it was possible to do that online. So what we did from 
the early days on is we reached out to everybody who went to our website and created an account that tried out the product. We like literally manually emailed people even at the point where there was, we could have easily automated it and it was a lot of work because we felt that it's important that we look at those new signups, like look at the data, the metadata and the analytics, figure out what they're doing, like what company they're working for, figure out what they're trying to achieve and then get in contact and, and be simply very focused on making sure that they get the value out of the product they were looking for. And we were very focused on understanding what they were looking for and then building a better product. So it was a very close relationship, a lot of like Google Hangouts or Skype calls, a lot of email interactions or like we used intercom from the very early days on and interacted with them a lot on intercom and then organized smaller meetups when we were in different cities, could be in Boston or other cities. So we were always focused on that and I think if you look at, at CodeShip and our industry and then also the market segments, we started to we started at the low end of the market. So we sold to a lot of other smaller technology companies or small teams instead larger companies. And then over the years moved our way further up in the market. And because we started at the low end, I think all those people in that market segment were more open to simply talk to us, right? We, we didn't, our, our, our sales cycles were always very short um, days, maybe a week, maybe two weeks. Our product was built in a very self-served way. We didn't do actual sales until like at, I think two years ago or something, or maybe now three years ago. So in the first half or two third of our our lifetime of the company, we didn't do any sales. It was always, we get people to our website, they create an account, they use the product. It's built for engineers. They can figure everything out on their own. We help them if they have questions, but then they also, if they see the value and they need more, for example, resources or certain features, they simply put in the credit card and start paying. So that, I think, is a very specific model that's different from, for example, enterprise sales. And so because of our model, it was always a very good relationship with the customer because we were providing value to them and we made their life easier and simpler and our product was significantly better than whatever they used before. And so they were very excited about using us and I think that that paid off at the end of the day. And did you ever receive any pressure from investors or from maybe your team or external parties in in spending more to grow that that uh, sales funnel faster? Of course, there is this internal pressure, right? You want to be more successful. You want to achieve more, see better metrics. So there is this pressure that all of us had and that we as a group had. And I think there you you simply have to balance, right? But you can figure it out within your team. I think with investors, I think it's a little bit more tricky because now understanding it better, I think you are you are a little bit misaligned. And I think taking venture capital is great and I think it was good for us and I would do it again if it makes sense for, for the business. But what I think founders have to be careful with is that you as a VC, right? If you are a Series A type of VC, you invest in a certain amount of companies per year and not a lot. You really need those one, two, three companies that are extremely successful and you have this power law distribution that drives returns. So what you are obviously pushing for is, well, you just got our money, so let's spend it and learn and make as much progress as possible in the shortest 
period of time because it's all about figuring out what works and then doubling down and then putting more money to work, raise more money, et cetera, et cetera. We rather, ABC rather, again, has those one, two, three companies that are extremely successful than a bunch that are average. And then you as a founder, even if you agree with that, you're, I think, a little bit more careful, right? Because you only have this one company. It's not that you are diversifying your bets like like ABC. ABC, if you look at a given fund, maybe there are 20 companies, so it's totally okay if three are extremely successful or two or one, and then the rest completely fails. But for you as a founder, it's, I mean, if you look at coaching, right, seven years, you you want to be successful, but at the same time, you don't want to push it that hard that the risk gets bigger and bigger that you fail. And so I think that's a delicate topic where I think you as a founder face a lot of pressure and you need to learn how to handle it and, and need to figure out a way. Where is it okay to, and where can you trust your investor that, that, that have maybe also more experience to push harder and, and put more money to work and try to grow faster because there are indicators indicating that you can and we certainly had those moments. But then you also have to be the voice that says, wait, 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 stop for a second. It maybe looks better than it is. We really need one more functionality or we need to launch that other product or we need to do those other steps or hire that one person first before we can truly accelerate because otherwise it, it won't work out. So I think Yes, we had to answer your question. Yes, there was a lot of pressure, both from, from us internally, but then also from other um, stake or shareholders, investors. And I think it's it's never easy. And you have to learn the skill as a founder, CEO, to manage that. So you did that across Europe and the US. Walk us through that chapter, moving to the US. Walk us through not just with the experience that a founder goes through when they when you go through that moving the company from HQ Europe, HQ US, but also in terms of what that means in terms of staff, culture shift, customer base shift, investor base shift, like lessons learned from that entire thing that you would give to yourself if you had to go through it all over again. There are a lot of lessons. I think what other founders can learn is I think it's really important and that's the first one it's really important that you commit to it and do it and do it 200% and there can't be any doubt I think if you if you were like well I want to race there and move there and then be there for a time but not really live there I think if you think like that it can get very challenging if if I look at our team we moved a couple of people and I'm the only person now that's still here and a lot of people moved back again because it is a pretty pretty big step, right? It, it, I mean, it sounds super awesome and it's probably also for for most of the people for a certain period of time because you, you move to a different country, that's exciting if you like it. And then you, in our case, we raised money and we had more momentum and so that was fun. Uh, but at some point you need to, and I'm here now for five years, at some point you need to realize you are also living now there and it's not that you are just there for work and then you sometimes go back wherever you lived before. And and what worked for me was that I, from the very first second on, clearly said I will move here and I will live here and I will. it's highly likely and more likely than not that I will be in the U.S., after the coaching chapter in my life. And that made it very easy for me 
because of that I made a lot of friends and and built like my relationships here and and really it feels like home now and if you don't have that I think it can get very exhausting and that's one session we learned as a team and and and, and I think that is that is important I think that you should only and that's the second lesson that worked out for us but I often meet founders who believe, especially the US and San Francisco and Silicon Valley, that's like that's like paradise. It, you move there and then you raise money because it's so easy and everybody raises money there and then it's all easy and all like downhill from there and magic happens. And I think that's not true. I think what people have to realize is that the US can be great and a lot of the, the mindset in the US, people are very open to new ideas. They always think about what would happen, how would the world look like if your idea is successful. They are not thinking about why it wouldn't work. And I love that attitude. There are also a lot of really good people here because there are more larger software companies and startups and former startups. So there's a bigger talent pool from which you can hire and learn and more mentors and all of that other founders you can meet. So I think that's all great. But what you have to realize as a founder is there's also more competition. Yes, there are more VCs in a certain area or there are more people you could hire, but there are also far more companies that are competing for that resource. And the, the quality of those companies, if you compare it with, for example, Austria is higher, significantly higher. And that's, in my opinion, awesome. Competition is great, but I think it's not it's it's not for everybody, and it's definitely not that everything is easier. So people people have to keep that in mind. Then maybe one one last lesson is, and that was one we had to learn the hard way. I think the first two we we kind of it kind of worked out for us very well. I think the third one it took us longer, and we certainly lost time because of that is. I underestimated how big the cultural difference between Europe and the US is. I always thought it's it's kind of the same, but it isn't. And there is a big difference when it comes to hiring people and expectations from people. And it took us a while and it took me a while to, to adjust and to understand how that all works in the US and learn how it works and speak the language of the people and read between the lines. And, and there are people in Austria are slightly different than people in like France and the UK and, and are also different than people in, in the US. And I think those tiny differences at some point you can, you can feel them and there can be misunderstandings and you can articulate things in the wrong way and people can, you can say A, but people hear B and all those things. So I think there it took us longer because we simply thought, Oh, it's like pretty much the same. And, and, and that's pretty easy, but I think there's a big difference. Well, that that probably taxed you as a manager quite a bit as well. If uh, if you had to shape and express how you evolved as a manager, what would you say that the biggest things were that changed you, that um, you remember as sort of mistakes or, or, or lessons learned, and your management style? That is a very good question <laughs> and, a, and a very personal one. So it, it definitely changed in a big way and I hope to the better. I think there are a couple of areas where I'm, I'm super happy that I changed and it helps me. I think I'm one big lesson was and where I'm different now is I care so much less about being right and 
I think I was more stubborn and more focused on proving other people wrong when I was younger and less experienced. And now all I'm focused on is, okay, what do we try to achieve as a team, as a company? What's our goal? And how do we get there? And if your way is better than my way, then it's your way and I don't care. And I could have argued for like a week that my way is better. But if I realize at some point that whatever you propose is better, then we do that. And and I will argue like for for your plan. And I think that took me a while to, to learn that. I think in the beginning, I because i'm a very competitive person i always thought i have to win like every every battle and that's important and if i don't do it then that's bad and i always thought that if i win in a discussion it's not just that i have to be right or the other person also has to fully understand why why their point of view was wrong because otherwise they don't learn and they don't get better and it was very focused on making sure people know why they were wrong and that they are wrong and that's just i think not a not a good way of motivating people and, and keeping people excited and happy and 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 i don't want to be treated like that i think that was that was a big one i think i think another big one and that's maybe very counterintuitive for a lot of people another big one was working less to achieve more in the beginning we were okay we are not that experienced. We were pretty young. I'm 28 now. So when we started coaching, I was 21. Uh, so we're like, hey, we're not young. We're not that good yet. We are inexperienced. So we, we recognized a lot of our weaknesses. And so we're like, okay, we have to work a lot to get better very fast, which I think is, is good. Uh, but at some point, what I had to realize is that if you always think that doing more and working more hours is an option, you actually don't push yourself hard enough to find better solutions that maybe take less time, right? If the, if the, if the axis on which you can be flexible is always the amount of hours, uh, then I think you make some pretty bad decisions and come up with solutions that are not scalable and you create a pretty toxic work environment. So I think that was, that was another big learning. I also learned from me as a manager, maybe I could work another hour, another two hours and sleep a little bit less and then I individually get more shit done. But, if I am exhausted and I have free one-on-ones with people who work for me the next day and I'm exhausted and tired and therefore a little bit less, like, less interested or more maybe, again, falling back in, in old patterns, less self-reflective, I, I will have a pretty negative impact on the people who work for me and then that has a pretty negative impact on the people who work for the people who work for me. So like recognizing all of that, I think helped me in a big way and that took quite a while because I always thought, well, as a as a founder you just have to work as much as possible and that's the only way how you can how you can be successful. And I think you have to work a lot and you have to work hard, but it's it's a very thin line where more is just so destructive and not helpful at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's very interesting and, and, and it's interesting to see how you've identified your journey. And it's it's crazy to think that you were 21 when you started i mean it's it's must have been such an acceleration curve for you how about selling any any thoughts you want to share with founders that are considering selling um how to manage that process better i think it's a very tricky process and it's for a lot of people and a lot of founders and you have to do it once to really know how to do it, which is which is very unfortunate, right? Uh, because building a company takes a lot of time and a 
in our case, seven years. And so how many companies can I sell in a lifetime? How many chances do I have to really learn the skill? And so I spent seven years building and then it all comes down to the skill of selling it in a good way and managing the process. And I have to learn it in a couple of months where this, this is happening. I think that was very challenging, um, but also very exciting but very definitely very challenging. So I think surrounding yourself with people who have done it before, other founders, and from whom you can learn, ideally people who have done it multiple times, I think that that helped me a lot and that helped me also in other areas, not just, not just selling, but I think even more with selling. I think the trickiest part for you as a founder CEO is if, if the company is a little bit bigger and if you have like employees, customers, revenue, co-founders, investors i think there are so many moving pieces and you are the only person that is responsible for all of that and a lot of the people whom you relied on for advice could be an investor could be a board member could be a founder i think a lot of those people are biased to a high degree so it's very hard for you to get very honest feedback that's focused on what's best for the company because everybody's a little bit biased and, and I was biased myself as well. So it's not that I was not biased. So learning from other founders how to navigate the process to make sure that even in, in cases where, and those cases simply exist, where you're maybe less aligned with your board members that are investors or where you are maybe less aligned with another person in the process. I think learning how to navigate that and keeping everybody running in the same direction and making it happy and making it happen, I think managing the process is the trickiest part and it needs a lot of, I think, hard work, a lot of careful, you have to carefully navigate and truly understand what motivates all the people at the table, like your investors, other shareholders, large big ones, co-founders, employees, lawyers, lawyers on the other side, they acquire uh, different people at the acquire uh, because not everybody maybe wants to acquire you. Maybe they're, they're one, two champions and then a couple of people who are neutral and then some people that are, don't think it makes sense. Then maybe you're working with a M&A firm. Um, we did that and that's another factor that can be helpful but also, again, complicated. So I think try as a founder, try to learn as much as possible from other founders on how to navigate the process because if you make a mistake, it blows up the whole process and then it, it will it will fall apart or you end up with a deal you don't like and it's and it's the final it's the final negotiation at least in the lifespan of that one company maybe you found other companies and then you do it again but i think it's different from like the contract you negotiate with a partner or with a customer or with an investor there's always something else and another um instance of that where you can do it differently and and learn but Selling, you do it once, and then the company is gone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that makes sense. Fine. Well, we've we've covered quite a bit of ground in terms of the story of the, across those chapters, and uh, we want to finalize with with some fun, you know, out, out of the blue questions. Um, <laughs> I'm bad at those. Yeah, no, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> the first one is, how has your life philosophy changed as a as an output from these past seven years, what what would you have said your meaning for life or your meaning for doing what you do was at age twenty one versus now twenty eight? Whoo, that's the that's a big one. Big one. <laughs> life, life advice. I have to give life advice right here. I think 
most important lesson for me is, and I have to be happy with my decisions and own my decisions. And that is so important because you maybe when you're younger and less experienced, it's maybe you maybe get pushed around a little bit easier or you do something because your investors pushed you to that or um, because other people, mentors or people from your team pushed you in a certain direction. At the end of the day, if you were the founder CEO, you own it and you are responsible and it doesn't matter who advised you to do it. You make the decision and you own it and it's your decision. And if it doesn't work out, it's your fault, period. So never do anything <laughs> where you could not look back and say, all right, it was maybe a bad decision. It didn't work out as planned, but like I didn't compromise my values. Um, I didn't do anything that I'm embarrassed for. And I think that is very important and true for life in general. I think never ever compromise your values with whatever you do, because I think once you compromise them, it, I think life, life sucks. I don't know how it looks like it, if you do that, but I don't want to be in that position where I get up in the morning and look into a mirror and I'm like, fuck, why did I do this? Um, yeah. That's not good. Uh, and so that is what I try to keep in mind in the situations where it was very hard, very tricky. Um, I always thought of, okay, what do I deeply care about in my life? And it's like, I'm an honest person. I think integrity is very important and a couple of other things. And I never, hopefully, in my opinion, compromise those yeah. values. Yeah, no, that, that's very valuable advice. If, uh, if, if we look at the seven weeks now that you've had since the sale of the company and in many ways, uh, you've transitioned quite quickly into your VP cloud role at Cloudbees. And I don't know if you took any time off, but what is left on your bucket list if you haven't already ticked some things off in these seven weeks? <laughs> uh, the bucket, bucket list is pretty long, right? So there are there are a lot of things I want to achieve within Cloudbees and in my current role and, and whatever future role I, I will have and whatever role I will play in Cloudbees, there are a lot of things we still want to achieve with Coachit. I mean, nothing, nothing there changed. We still want to get more customers, build out our product, do a really, a lot of really exciting things and we're working on some of those. So nothing, nothing there changed. Then there are things I want to do personally. And then last but not least, I mean, I will build another company and when we started CodeChip, our goal was not to sell CodeChip. I mean, we knew we were always pragmatic and realistic, especially when you raise venture capital and take money from other people. You have to, at some point, provide a return. And that means you get, it's likely that, that it means you get acquired. But I will build another company and, and it will be bigger than, than CodeChip. I think we, we did great and it's a great outcome and, and I'm, I'm happy, but at the end of the day, I want to build a long-lasting company that is independent and has the biggest possible impact uh, on the on the problem field and tackling. And I think that will. And right now, I'm super happy with Cloudbees, but I know that in a couple of years, I think that urge of like building something out of nothing will get so big that I can't resist and I have to do it again. And I want to do it right and better and bigger than I did it in the last ten years. Mm. Well, I look forward to I look forward to seeing that new company. Well, guys, one thing you might not know about Mo is that he's an avid boulder. He's actually quite <laughs> quite good. Um, I've I've gone with him a couple of times, and he's just completely whipped me. Um, so if if I guess if 
you're ever around when Mo's around in wherever he might be, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's up for a challenge. Is that a fair statement, Mo? That's, that's a fair statement. There are definitely some climbing and also skiing items on my on my pocket list as well. So, <laughs> Well, that's, that's how uh, you can always find a way of, of getting to talk to Mo, following his advice on talking to founders that have gone through something already. And with that, I want to thank you, Mo, for joining us on this episode. It was great to hear your story. It's it's an, it's incredible to to think that it's been that long, uh, and I look forward to reading the next chapter of the book. Awesome, thank you. Thanks for having me. If if anybody wants to get any advice or wants to get in contact with me, I think Twitter is probably the easiest way. So, just ping me on Twitter, more um, it's Plasnik. If you if you want to chat, happy to help anybody. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.